We're thrilled to welcome David Kaufman, partner at Third Rock Ventures, to the show today. David, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's kick things off. David, would you mind sharing a brief intro with us? Sure. So I'm trained as an infectious disease physician and HIV immunologist. And I, I guess I've had a pretty peripatetic career. Um, I wandered into a lot of different spaces, starting in academia um, as both a practicing physician and as a researcher, and then moving into pharma, into biotech, uh, in the nonprofit sector, and now into venture. And I guess, um, you know, overall, I feel like I've had a career that's given me a pretty multifaceted view of both the challenges and opportunities around the, the central problem of translating new scientific insights, new technologies into, into patient impact. Um, and I think the other thing I've been lucky enough to experience is to be in environments where a lot of innovation was happening, not only on the scientific side, but, um, but in terms of clinical trial design and regulatory innovation, in terms of innovation and the structure of a new type of organization. And, um, you know, so I really enjoy um, being sort of a perpetual rotator, getting these diverse perspectives and then working at the intersection of both the human challenges and the scientific challenges of, of bringing new products to patients. A phenomenal fit for your background as well. And as you mentioned, your career began as more of a physician scientist before you expanded into non uh, pharma, the nonprofit space, and now venture. And so given this incredible breadth and the tie into innovation, one question we love to ask our audience comes from, uh, what is one question, sorry, let me restate that, apologies everyone. Your career began as a physician scientist before expanding into pharma, the nonprofit space, and now venture. Given the incredible breadth of your career and the opportunities you've had, as you mentioned, to explore innovation for patient impact, what has been your North Star, the common thread, if you will, that ties your work together? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I would say, first and foremost, this hasn't been a planned pro progression. And um, uh, looking back, it's easy to fit a coherent nar narrative, but, um, but I think that I've tried to consistently make decisions based on a few factors, right? One is I've tried to choose things to work on where I feel passionate at the time about the next step. And I've also tried to put myself on a learning curve, often sort of out over my skis a little bit in terms of getting on the sharpest learning curve. Um, and and I, I've had that privilege. Um, I think, you know, for many of us who've gone through medical and scientific training in the world today, that privilege exists. And, and I think we're lucky enough to be able to, to then sort of follow our passions and, and follow our desire to learn. Um, for me, one of the hallmarks of my career has been sort of moving back and forth between um, really global health focused spaces and then for-profit environments for product development. And I've also had the opportunity to sort of work in at least one environment that, that actually tries to merge those together as productively as possible. And I think one thing, again, I'm very passionate about global health but I also um, am someone who feels comfortable working in environments where there is a profit motive that's driving the business. Um, and, and I think it's a particular challenge to understand how we can put the kind of innovation and energy and resources that those type of environments can provide uh, into the broader service of the biggest health problems and the biggest global health problems. That leads wonderfully into our next question. 
and it comes from Dennis Gabor, an electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics, who said, the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. So maybe in the lens of global health, but also more broadly, can you tell us what does inventing the future mean to you? I think this is a great phrase. Um, obviously, it provide you know it implies that we have agency and that we should be believing in our own creativity. And I think that that's great. But but you know a flip side of that to sort of what I was saying previously is I think there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that kind of empowerment. And so I think if we can if we have the ability to put those creative energies in a lot of different directions, I think we have a responsibility to make sure that the fruits of those efforts can impact as many lives as possible um, or make the biggest differences in the lives of the, the people that we are trying to impact. Um, and, and, you know, my background and training is as a translational physician scientist and someone who sort of has had the privilege of seeing sort of the end-to-end -end development process of drugs and then also um, to, to, to work in spaces where issues around access are really important. And so I think, you know, my, my perspective on this is making sure that as we do um, bring that creativity and agency to the fore, that we're actually bringing all these downstream considerations early into the development process, early into the innovation process. And I think that that's relevant for how I approach the venture space and how I think about company creation. And that leads us beautifully into our first topic on translational medicine and the Gates Medical Research Institute. Michael, take it away. Thank you, Chris. David, you began your career as an MD-PhD and became a physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Beth Israel Medical Center, as well as an instructor at Harvard Medical School. From there, you pivoted to lead immuno-oncology translational medicine at Merck Research Laboratories, helping to oversee the launch of the blockbuster Keytruda. Can you tell us more about your start as a physician and what led you to shift your focus from infectious disease medicine to immuno-oncology translation in pharma? Uh, sure. So I, I got my start in science and in the biomedical space, actually as a high school student working on cancer research and did a lot of cancer research through my undergraduate years. But as an undergrad at Swarthmore College, I became really interested in global health and particularly in this idea of vaccines as a solution or a prophylactic for many diseases that have huge global health burden. Um, so that was something that captivated me. And when I did um, MD-PhD training, I focused on HIV research, but I also had the opportunity to then see the HIV epidemic from a firsthand perspective, um, working in clinics in New York City, working with the CDC in Uganda. Um, and then as a fellow, I was actually able to really get into the vaccine development space front and center when I trained with Dan Baruch uh, at Beth Israel. And Dan is the originator of the Ad26 platform that's now the foundation for J&J's COVID vaccine and many of their other vaccine programs. And so in many ways, I was still in academia, but I was exposed to a very product development forward environment. And so I stayed on in, um, in that academic environment for a little while, but I had the bug to make stuff that went into people. And so I decided to go to Merck because Merck is a storied vaccine company. And my intention was to go and work on vaccine development, but I showed up right when Keytruda came along. And um, Merck was never a huge oncology company before Keytruda became front and center in their portfolio. 
And so it was an amazing experience to be in an environment where there was this huge R&D engine and it's trying to essentially shift directions so that by the time I left Merck, probably half the R&D budget was focused on immuno-oncology. Um, and there was just an incredible opportunity to harness the power of an organization like Merck and point it in this place where all of a sudden we were curing previously incurable cancers. Um, so again, it was a huge privilege to be able to do that, but it also gave me a real sense, again, for the power that an organization like Merck can bring to an important health topic when there's a breakthrough like Keytruda, and honestly, you know, obviously the profits associated with something like Keytruda on the line. Um, it's influenced then sort of my, my desire to bring more of that kind of um, energy towards the global health space. So taking a step further, after your role leading the translational medicine at Merck, you became the chief medical officer and head of translational development at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for Medical Research. Uh, the MRI was established as a nonprofit biotech to develop novel drugs and vaccines for tuberculosis, malaria, neonatal health, and other global health challenges. What led you to the MRI from Merck? Can you describe your transition to the Institute? Sure. So first of all, being at Merck, as I said, during the, the time that Keytruda was becoming a drug and actually reaching patients was a really incredible experience. And getting the opportunity to lead translational research there and being in the flow of information from all of the samples that we were collecting from our trials, from the network of collaborations that we built, um, to try to understand why immunotherapy was working in some patients and not others, to try to use that data to, to really change paradigms for sort of the next generation of immunotherapies. That was extremely exciting. Um, and I felt like I kind of had an, another once in a lifetime opportunity um, in getting to help establish the Gates MRI. And uh, I'll just say that, you know, even when I was at Merck working on Keytruda, I still thought about global health a lot. Um, I was giving talks at the Gates Foundation about how is it um, a granuloma and TB like a tumor and what are we learning in the IO field that might actually be beneficial for diseases like TB. Um, I ended up as a director of the Society for the Immunotherapy of Cancer and actually helped to launch a, um, an initiative to uh, bring checkpoint blockade immunotherapies to, to lower income settings. And so um, it's not like I had sort of lost that interest in, in going over and working in the, uh, in the immuno-oncology space. And so when the, I heard that the Gates Foundation was essentially starting uh, for the first time in its history, its own R&D arm, it felt like another, something I couldn't say no to. Um, and it's really a unique kind of organization. Um, the, the goal is essentially to bring the urgency and sort of the most cutting edge tools that biopharma has to bear on diseases where that, the, those tools and that sense of urgency to move development quickly hasn't always been present. And so um, these are diseases like TB, malaria, diarrheal diseases, other problems that obviously predominantly um, uh, are, are impacting vulnerable populations in lower income countries. Let's dive a bit deeper on the MRI's approach. What is unique about their model for technology innovation, translation and commercialization? Well, I wouldn't say totally unique because there's been an ecosystem of nonprofit product development partnerships that's existed for many years in the global health community. And these, these are organizations that have made a lot of important uh, uh, contributions. 
I think um, here uh, we wanted to sort of build an organization that was working across enough therapeutic areas, enough disease areas to be really nimble in deploying resources wherever the innovation presented. And I think honestly, of course, with the Gates name on the door, um, there were a lot of lot of there are a lot of very idealistic, mission-driven people with deep experience in biopharma who wanted to come work for this. And so we had the opportunity to build this incredible team. Um, uh, you know, for me, it was my first experience building an organization from scratch. Day one, there were five of us in a, in a WeWork office, and we built this into a clinical stage development organization that was running trials um, globally. Um, and I think that it's a dual challenge to build any organization like this, um, sort of in typical bio, biotech fashion, but also to navigate, navigate the complexities of doing that in a global health ecosystem. Uh, and I mean that both in terms of the logistical and operational complexities, but also just because that is a very complicated e ecosystem um, from a sort of social and cultural standpoint. And there are many, many different players. Uh, so coming on board with the bright spotlight that's on you when the Gates name is on your door uh, and trying to then actually show that you're going to make a meaningful contribution a takes time and B takes really aligning a lot of stakeholders. So it was an incredible education in, in building something very, very complex and in many ways, relatively unique. Taking things a step further with both human and global health as pressing challenges faced by humanity, how do you think about the role of the MRI and other nonprofits in engineering biology for sustainable global health? You know, I think that that's a really good question. Um, I, I think that sustainability in global health um, is, is something that's gonna take a deeper commitment from around the globe. Um, you know, the Gates MRI is an incredible innovation, but it really represents only private philanthropy dollars at work. And as important as private philanthropy may be to catalyze work, and obviously the Gates Foundation is doing incredible work around the world, the model of having folks who've earned their billions then subsequently finance good around the world isn't a sustainable model when we think about the scale of global complexities. So, you know, ultimately it would be great to see the success of efforts like this catalyze more public dollars flowing to more nimble structures like the Gates MRI or other similar organizations that, that can actually bring the kind of urgency and, and cutting edge approaches to, um, to solving problems around the globe. And talking about that sort of transition and bringing dollars to bear, that seems like a great uh, transitionary point to talk more about your experience in venture and public health. So during the pandemic, you transitioned from the MRI to be a venture partner at Third Rock Ventures, and you were rapidly promoted to partner this January. Congratulations. Thank you. What prompted your pivot from the MRI to venture and of the various firms, what led you to Third Rock? I know it seems like a strange kind of um, disconnect to move from the Gates Foundation ecosystem to a venture capital firm in the middle of a, a global pandemic. Um, for me, I think there were two factors. One, for me, a sweet spot is this innovative upstream space of really thinking about translational science and moving translational science into a development context. And my role at Gates MRI was much more about 
operating and building an organization, which, as I said, was an incredible experience. But um, I was I was eager to get back to sort of the creative the creative space of that highly translational work. And secondly, I felt that Third Rock in particular was a firm that really um, understood the value and the amount of work that's actually required to successfully transition emerging science into real development um, and to build organizations that are actually resilient enough and nimble enough to get products over the finish line to patients. So um, as I had conversations with the folks at Third Rock about coming here, um, I was actually encouraged to continue to look for intersections with global health as I thought about company creation. And so I really did feel like I could come here having the white space to pursue many of the things I was passionate about without a lot of constraint, except the constraint of business innovation to ensure that anything I was doing um, was going to be consistent with building uh, a great and resilient business. As you mentioned, Third Rock is one of the most well-known life science venture creation firms, producing over 60 transformative companies in just 15 years including places like Editas, Relay Therapeutics, and more recently, the immuno-oncology company Asher Bio, where you, I believe, currently serve as head of clinical and translational research. So maybe taking a step back, uh, can you dive into Third Rock's process for creating new companies and maybe tell us a little bit about the criteria for selecting ideas to pursue? Sure. So I have known the Third Rock ecosystem and folks at Third Rock for a while. So this was a move that I made with eyes wide open. And what attracted me to Third Rock were a few things. First, it's a firm of folks who pretty much across the board have very deep operating experience in companies. And there is a very strong commitment to a builder operator model here, where there's a belief that you need many people around the table with diverse operational and scientific skill sets to really do this company ideation and company launch process. Um, and then, like you were describing, um, many of us then actually go out into the companies early in their life cycle and help to stand them up. We have associates and entrepreneurs and residents who do that on a full-time basis, having come here for a few years. And then folks like the partners and the venture partners will go out in interim roles, like I'm currently doing, uh, essentially as acting CMO at, at Asher. And, um, you know, I think the, you know, again, one of the hallmarks then of the companies that we create um, is that we generally have lines of sight to really strong patient impact. The upside of our companies, if they prove their thesis, is hopefully going to be transformative medicines for patients or diagnostics or prophylactics. And um, I think sort of that that level of pull through of the translational thinking of the clinical thinking is something that attracted me to the kinds of companies that that Third Rock often builds. And given your active engagement in building companies, how do you think about balancing, especially on the day to day, the roles of operator and venture creator? Well, I think balance is not something that I have on a day-to-day -day basis every single day. <laughs> but, but I would say, you know, importantly, that these are, are mutually reinforcing. And I think, again, that's, that's a very strong part of the philosophy here, is that the only way that you really learn how to build new companies in the venture space is to have built companies before and understand that 
success is not defined by launching a company. Success is defined as actually impacting patients by getting products over the finish line. And so a company has to do a lot of things after launch quite successfully and generally quite nimbly. Um, right? A company is going to almost inevitably go off of its original business plan and funding at some point will become tight. And so companies need to be built with the strategic thinking and the resiliency and the culture to be able to handle those kinds of vicissitudes. I think learning both the development aspects of that and then sort of the cultural and sort of small company specific aspects of that make you a much better company creator uh, than if you hadn't had a lot of experience in that space. And I'm saying that as someone who's had a modest amount of experience in that space and has found it invaluable in, in doing what I do now. Oh, we couldn't agree more. And I think actually that leads well into the next my, my next question around coming from such a multi-organizational background, in particular yourself, how have you thought about creating culture in the companies, especially as you're now not only building them, but working in them as an operator as well? Well, I think that, again, because Third Rock has this builder-operator model, there's a very deep connection between the, the culture of Third Rock itself and the culture and the companies that we, we put together. And as I mentioned before, um, we believe in a very team-driven approach to creating companies and the inputs of many different voices with a lot of different levels of expertise and different types of expertise uh, into each company. And I think that that kind of collegiality and kind of mutual listening um, translates into the desire to build companies that have similar kinds of qualities. So I think culture is a very important part uh, of the entire ecosystem for us and, and, and certainly a critical success factor for any company. Last, um, well, let, let me scratch that. By any chance, would you be able to share an overview of some of the current companies you're currently incubating? I can, can't really go into great detail about that, but I can say, of course, that I'm an immunologist. And so I believe that everything in every disease area can pretty much be solved by manipulating the immune system. Uh, so I'm working a lot of projects that have an immunologic focus or, or aspect to them. And I'm also really excited that I've, I've been able to work on projects that, that I do think will ultimately have uh, an impact in the global health ecosystem. And, and so that's been exciting to see that something that I was really hopeful for in transitioning out of Gates is actually um, you know, coming, coming to fruition, at least in, 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 the early, in the early days. That's definitely a great teaser, and we will watch with bated breath to see where some of these projects take us. Taking a pause from the formal podcast of the uh, moment, David, how, how are you feeling so far? Are the questions okay? The pace? Is there anything you want to dive deeper into uh, or want to amend? Just taking no, taking it's, it's fine for me. I may be saying um a few too many times. <laughs> I can't quite tell. How's it sounding from your, from your end? That's uh, been sounding good to me so far. It's not only thoughtful, but uh, it's almost, I, I've been quite impressed with the way you're almost guiding the answers to lead so well into the next question. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it's, um, it's been great. And I think the, we've had a few folks come on who uh, I've asked one question and gotten a 20 minute answer. So being able to um, share something thoughtful, but at the same time, not, not go too long. So that way we can expand and explore different, different questions is great. 
But if you well, do, I'm, if there I'm is anything, sure. go ahead. I'm not sure I'm intentionally linking questions, but I'm glad it's working out that way. Yeah. And if there is anything, well, we we also try to be thoughtful with um, how we how we organize the script. But by that same token, uh, if there is anything you want to dive deeper into, don't feel don't feel like you need to pause or hesitate to, um, in that regard. I also really just taking a pause, really appreciated your answer to the sustainable global health question. That's one I'd love to dive into further. And uh, maybe we can a little bit at the end if we if we have a yeah. few minutes. But sure. I mean, I think we have some a couple of questions coming up that might touch on it, but we can always talk more about it. I, I'll, I'll just say, and I will say it on the podcast, like, I don't think I have the answers. I think those are really hard questions. Yep. Um, I think I have some idea about some of the elements that we need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. No, I, I got that from, I think you had the presentation to, I forget if it was HMS or the medical student, uh, the medical students at HMS. And I was reading through and it okay. seems, um, that seems, like you've really put a lot of thought into it. And that's part of why I wanted to to use this as a platform to share your thoughts uh, and learn more about them. But Great. all right, diving, diving back in then. Um, from your background to your current experience, it's clear you have a passion to tackle the twin challenges of oncology and infectious disease. You've touched on this a bit, but I'd love to understand why these two disease spaces. Well, as I said, I'm passionate about immunology and certainly the immunology crosses over. I mean, tumors essentially co-opt many of the the homeostatic mechanisms that we've developed or evolved to prevent immunopathology in the setting of chronic infection or acute infection. And tumors co-opt those mechanisms to escape anti-tumor immune surveillance. So there's a lot of um, continuity between the biology when you're using an immune lens. And um, the original insights that we had around the role of PD-1 um, biology um, came at least in part originally from the infectious disease world. Conversely, I think in the COVID era, you've seen a huge amount of crossover from the oncology space to impact how we've responded to the COVID epidemic. Some of that's been on scientific innovation, but it's also been around running early phase clinical trials where Oncologists have a lot more experience with running adaptive designs and multi-drug studies, um, drug repurposing. So there's been really interesting bi-directional cross-fertilization over the years between the fields. And that's what we always hope for. How can we cross-fertilize so that we can continue to strive for and yield patient impact in a positive way more, more quickly and more rapidly? And thinking Absolutely. about Thinking about that, in an industry where, at least until recently, oncology has continued to dominate, how do you think about moving the needle, as you talked about before, to attract investors and address uh, public health challenges? Or maybe maybe to rephrase and say it another way, how do you think about the role of venture in public health? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't claim to have the answers here. Uh, but it's something that I do think about a lot, and I hope it's something that I get better at thinking about as I spend more time in the venture space. Um, I think the bottom line is that you need business-relevant solutions to some of the global health challenges in order to unleash the full creativity that, that we have in our industry. And I think we need to harness that creativity, and I think it's okay that that creativity is, is coming from the for-profit space, but, but it's not going to happen automatically. Um, and so... You know, you need people who are actually thinking about building businesses 
and thinking early about, you know, where are there potentially dual market, high income, low income opportunities? You know, for example, we're really excited about modular manufacturing solutions for RNA and RNA LMP to make the next generation of vaccines and RNA therapeutics. Um, but those are also tools that are incredibly useful in low infrastructure environments. Um, are there innovations in how we even launch companies and actually move science into a development context? Um, you know, the Gates Foundation has early collaborations with a lot of companies. Some of that is investment funding, some of it's non-dilutive funding. As we talked about before, philanthropic dollars aren't necessarily scalable to become the solution for everything. But there's certainly innovation in thinking about early partnerships in that space, given the, the dollars that are flowing. Another piece, I think, is that it's not just low income, but also middle income countries that can drive um, global innovation. And I think you're seeing that post COVID or not post COVID because we're still in the middle of it. But after the initial wave of the epidemic, you're seeing a lot of global stakeholders who didn't necessarily have, say, control over the immediate flow of vaccines or therapeutics uh, to their, their, their populations, think about how they're going to be more prepared the next time. And I think that that creates a network of global stakeholders who, again, may have opportunities to put both non-dilutive funding or investments into innovation to solve some of those problems. So um, it's a changing landscape. I think it takes attention and I think it takes early thinking about those downstream issues as you think about how to create companies that are both going to be great businesses and also have the greatest chance to have the broadest impact. Tying all of those themes together and maybe even stepping beyond them then, what do you want to build in the future with Third Round? Well, obviously I want to stay on the cutting edge of all the innovative science and development that's going on. But again, I really want to just continue to bring the best operational experience um, to the upstream innovators and put that innovation together with that operational experience to build really resilient companies that will actually get drugs, vaccines, diagnostics over the finish line for patients. Again, for, for me, and I think for my colleagues at Third Rock, the metric isn't company creation, it's not IPOs, it's actually getting products to patients. Michael. Great. So David, you have seen every lens of the biotech ecosystem throughout your career, from academic research, clinical practice, and pharmaceutical leadership to nonprofit development and now venture. When you began your career, did you ever think that you'd work across the industry so broadly? No, I had no idea. Um, I assumed that I was going to go into an academic research track like many people starting out. Um, I think it would have been nice to be aware of the breadth of opportunities and, and options earlier, uh, because there are so many options for folks, particularly now entering um, this, this broader biomedical space. Um, I was lucky enough that by the end of my training, I had actually seen a, a lot of different facets of that broader ecosystem. And what also happened for me personally in academia is, um, not only was I just worried that my, my work would sort of stay in mice and monkeys and, and not ultimately have impact on people, but I also sort of um, really disliked the sort of early career investigator experience of spending long periods of time toiling solo, 
one of the things I've loved about many of these other spaces is just the team-driven nature of the work. And I've learned so much from my peers and colleagues at, at Merck, at Gates, um, at Third Rock, and our portfolio companies. Um, the, and, and as I've gotten older, it's harder to learn from papers, and I get, I like get much more learning experience by talking to really smart people. So I'm, I feel really lucky that I get to do that uh, on a regular basis now. And as we've explored throughout the discussion, it's really shown that that breadth of experience has really helped you develop such a great perspective, uh, which is you know, not seen as often in the industry. However, moving forward, as you mentioned, there really are a lot of options for young professionals today. And largely due to pioneers yourself, the moniker of non-traditional backgrounds no longer applies as it once did. Do you have advice for young professionals seeking to explore their own means of helping patients? Yeah, I mean, I think for many of us, we're lucky to train in these privileged and rarefied environments. I would say be aware of your privilege. Um, I mean that in a couple of ways, right? First of all, I think many, many of us are not aware of how worthwhile our skill sets are to so many different organizations and stakeholders and how many doors are open as a result. So part of it is just sort of be aware of your self-worth and be that also gives you sort of the confidence to take risks if you have that awareness. I would also say be aware of your privilege in terms of thinking about not being getting complacent about the impact that you're having without thinking about some of those downstream issues like access and other things, um, because I think that not everyone has that privilege. Um, I would also emphasize um, particularly the, the point about the side of sort of being aware of, 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 of your worth about getting outside your comfort zone. Because I think ultimately you can't get into an innovation space unless you're comfortable being outside your comfort zone, so to speak. It doesn't always feel good to be a bit out of your skis. It doesn't always feel good to have more on your plate than you can do as well as you like to do things. But for the most of the things that are really exciting to do that I've personally found, um, it's taken getting and getting uh, used to being in that kind of a space a lot of the time. Um, and that can be hard and it certainly can be hard at first and it's been hard for me at times, but, but in the end, I think it pays off to get comfortable with discomfort. I think that's very valuable insight. And, and as a student myself, I can, uh, you know, really empathize and, and connect with that message and coming from a nonprofit that is trying to address some of the most substantial global health concerns where Perhaps investment incentives may be limited to Third Rock, which has similar values to aiming to build sustainable, innovative companies. What has your philosophical message been in regards to biotech? You know, I think for me, it's been to set your own yardstick for what it means to be successful and to have impact. I think in the for-profit world, we're rightly proud of the work that we're doing and we feel that we're making an impact, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be aware of the health economics of the world in which we operate. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be alert for opportunities to drive the innovation that we're lucky enough to be able to effect to the broadest possible audience and the broadest possible patient population. And I think each of us has um, you know, different skills to bring to the table to solve that problem as well as to solve the problems of diseases in high income settings. 
Leaning into that, what do you think are some of the changes we may need to see to successfully promote community health and global health, uh, especially in lower income neighborhoods and countries? That's a big topic. I'm not sure that I can sort of bite that whole thing off, nor, nor do I have, have the answers. I can talk from my personal experience about one, one thing that I found to be really important and exciting. And it, it actually comes from time that I spent at the end of the medical at end of medical school working for the CDC in Uganda. And I had the, again, the privilege of working on what was really the first treatment program for HIV in rural Africa. And this was at a time when nobody believed that that was really possible. People wouldn't be adherent. They wouldn't understand the need to take medicines every day. The side effects of AZT and some of the other drugs would be intolerable, wouldn't be able to manage. And this project trained locals to be community health promoters and to be the backbone of the distribution and monitoring and ended up having better outcomes than most patients have in the US. And um, I learned later on that Tony Fauci had come to visit this project and had gone back and in, was part of this was part of the conversation with George W. Bush that ultimately led to PEPFAR being formed, which is the program that provides billions for treatment of HIV in, in Africa. And that experience gave me the, the, the deep conviction that if you show that something's possible, then it creates the economic imperative to actually, and the moral imperative to, to, to spend the money to do something. It changes the economic conversation to show, it's to show the, you know, the, the risk, the benefit, and the cost. And if people actually understand concretely how those things actually function in a low-income setting around a particular disease, then you're having a much more pragmatic and focused conversation and a conversation where you have a really good sense of what's actually possible. It's something that I've um, brought to um, my role at the Society for the Immunotherapy of Cancer, where I'm now leading a global access initiative around getting checkpoint blockade into low and middle income countries more, more effectively. And a lot of that, again, is around understanding in local settings where there may be a different infrastructure, a different background burden of disease, what's the cost risk to benefit of, of actually administering those types of therapies in those types of settings. Through BIOS, we have had the pleasure of highlighting the stories of first generation university students such as Professor David Mooney at the VIS. And over the last 20 years, you have made a huge commitment to support first generation students at Swarthmore College. Can you tell us more about this program and your motivation behind it? Yes, well, this is something I've actually come to a little more recently. And Swarthmore has actually made an incredible commitment to first and family students. I think about a third of the student body now is first and family. And um, they, a number of years ago, there was a survey that went out to first and family students about challenges in adjusting to that kind of elite liberal arts college environment. and it sounded like you know the results of that were that the science students were actually in some ways having the hardest um the hardest time and the reason for this at least as i understand it a couple of reasons that, that people sort of mentioned were one um risk taking that um the stakes were so high for failure that the process of failing to succeed that's so integral to science um actually was was, was quite challenging to adjust to and a second thing that I think was a common theme that emerged from, from this survey is just um, the, the, 
the time commitment that's required to to do science, to work in labs. Um, that you know, the talents that got many of these students to Swarthmore also made them important breadwinners for their family, important in 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 helping economically. And so those constraints made it particularly challenging. Um, particularly around the former piece, um, the Swarthmore, one of the Swarthmore professors had started a summer scholars program to try to help students think, um, get into a comfort zone around, around this kind of experience of, of doing scientific research. And so I've been involved in, uh, in, in some ways with that program um, and working with some of the students. But I just think that it's, um, it's such a central tenet, as I was saying before, to having a career in venture, in innovation, that you get out over your skis. And to help students getting comfortable with that, it's something that even I, coming from a pretty privileged background, struggled with. And so it felt like something that I could help with since I'd, um, I'd gone through some of those experiences before. The other thing is I think that many many students and certainly many first and family students don't have a sense of the, the importance of networks in understanding what opportunities are available. And we have a very strong alumni work network. And so it's been important to me to help students tap into that network. Very meaningful work. Do you have any advice for professionals such as yourself seeking to give back to the next generation? I would just say that it's been incredibly inspiring to work with talented young people. Um, my wife is a middle school teacher and gets to do that all day. But for me, um, it's just been really energizing as a aging, uh, <laughs> aging scientist and venture uh, capitalist to, to actually pick up on the on the energy and idealism of some of the young folks I've had the privilege of working with. David, thank you for your thoughts. Before we come to a close, a few rapid fire questions to try and cap things off. First, what would you say are the grand challenges facing the life sciences over the next 30 years? Well, I'd say thematically, I'll go back to what we were talking about through a lot of this interview, which is access. I think the challenge of sustaining the level of innovation that we're able to sustain in this, is this environment and not break the bank on our own healthcare system and to actually go beyond impact in our own healthcare system and go global is the, probably the central challenge that I see. And now let's flash forward, building on the challenges you've described and trying to realize this vision. Could you try to paint us a picture of what biotech in 2050 will look like? Well, again, I think part of the solution to that problem is not just that we figure out how to pay for stuff, but it's actually that we innovate to increase the probability of technical success, that we innovate to develop drugs faster, that we develop faster manufacturing methods and, and cheaper manufacturing methods. So that sustainability comes from innovation as well as from, um, from, from market innovation and from societal pressure. Jumping ahead with that, uh, can you tell us where Third Rock will be in 2050? How well, are you continuing to drive that innovation? I hope that Third Rock is still the place that you want to be. If you want to be with a brilliant and highly collegial group of builder operators who want to build resilient, patient-focused companies, right? Um, I think it's a great model, and I hope that it's sustained 
just as much in 2050 as it is today. Any other clothing, closing thoughts you'd like to share as we wrap up this episode? Any shameless plugs? Well, I will certainly shamelessly plug our associates program. Um, we have an incredible program for folks who are coming out of graduate school, coming out of early career opportunities or early career experiences to come in, see how company ideation works, and then to actually go out with the company that you create. Um, our associates make really, really central contributions to all of our projects. Like I said, in an environment that's very flat and collegial, and I think a great learning environment. So it's a shameless plug for sure. We've touched on a lot of exciting topics and projects you've worked on. How can our audience learn more about your work? Well, I'd be happy to connect with folks who are interested in learning more and um, maybe we can take a break. And I don't know what people are normally doing here in terms of providing follow-up info. Certainly people can connect with me on LinkedIn or do, do people actually provide their email in the... Yeah. Normally, in a situation like this, it depends on the person's background. Uh, for VCs, they often direct them to their to their website if they want to reach out uh, over email, or if uh, we have a surprising number of people ask that people connect with them on Twitter and send them messages that way. Um, okay. If people have their own labs, they'll typically refer to those websites, but uh, it tend it does not tend to be. Um, people enumerating their emails but if that's something you'd like right. to, we, we have had it happen before so whatever you're most comfortable I, with all right all right then i'll start that answer again i'd love to have follow-up conversations with anyone who's interested you can find my contact particulars on the third rock website or you can reach out to me on linkedin thank you again david for an absolutely incredible episode we are incredibly grateful for your time and look forward to keeping in touch as we try to move forward with patient impact. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, do we want to take a minute? It sounds like we still have a few left um, and we can, re we can reinsert these earlier. Ask a few questions of your thoughts on the pandemic. Did you just, would you prefer just a debrief and prep for your next, uh, next call? Happy to work with whatever makes most yeah. sense. Why don't you see if you have enough? I would say that some of these pandemic questions we might want to talk about a little bit just because I think some of these are such broad questions that it would be hard for me to give a really meaningful answer. And so I'm happy to, if you feel like you want to fill that, like if you have more space to fill, maybe we set up another call to have a few other answers if you want. Sure. And we can always do a follow-up. We can have, um, as I think I might've mentioned in the email, there's also always the option. We like to say we can be a conduit for your brilliance. So this is our, our platform for you. And if um, we wanna have that conversation and then maybe uh, I could write something up on your, we could write something up on your behalf and then you can edit it. So that way it's basically your words. Um, we can also try to put sure. something out there in that regard. So there are a lot of ways we can do this. Uh, we can have a separate episode. So just Great. seemed like it could be an interesting, um, interesting conversation point. But Michael, Drew, I didn't know if you had thoughts you wanted to bring up or share um, before we wrapped up and gave David some time back on what I'm sure is a busy Friday afternoon. Yeah, well, I really, you know, I, I found this conversation very interesting and I, I kind of loved hearing about how some of your perspectives changed as you've gone through the different positions in your career. There's been a lot of 
kind of variability and, and breadth to it. Um, you know, I had one question as you've explored different avenues of the healthcare space, how have your perspectives on patient impact 